Coming up today, the startup selling dodgy ball-boosting supplements and is your name ruining your life? You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me today are Matt Burgess. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Samsung revealed that it has the ability to remotely block stolen TVs. The tech giant activated TV block mode in South Africa this week after a number of televisions were taken from a warehouse. It was also the week when Chinese ride-hailing giant Didi halted its plans to launch in Europe. No reason has been given for the company ditching the plans, but it comes as China has been cracking down on its own tech giants. And it was finally the week when astronomers identified a whole new class of exoplanets that might be capable of harbouring life. They're called Hycian planets and they're hot, ocean-covered worlds with hydrogen-rich atmospheres. Astronomers think there are a lot more planets like this than there are Earth-like planets. That doesn't sound that hospitable to life, Matt, I've got to say. Hydrogen-rich atmospheres. Well, you say that, but if you're a fish a ocean-filled world, I mean, if you're a fish that somehow has found out a way to breathe hydrogen, then an ocean-filled world is full of opportunities. So what you're saying is that as well as exploring interstellar travel, we should be looking for a way to turn ourselves into a fish that breathe hydrogen, and that's the way to ensure the future of the human race. Yeah, well, everyone else is going to Mars and thinking about growing potatoes and whatever. I'm getting some gills and I'm I'm hanging out on these uh, little Neptune-like planets, the big oceans. So, yeah, just just leave me to it. You you guys have fun on Mars. Playing the long game. I love it. Uh, let's go to our interesting facts. Matt Burgess, what have you got for us? Yeah, I've got something that's nice and contemporary this week. Um, so I've actually been uh, just in my spare time sort of just reading about sort of like some history of London and things like that. Um, and obviously sort of knew that um, there was a big sort of in the 1700s, there was a big sort of craze and popularity around sort of gin and um, and the drink sort of became super popular at that time. But I also learned a few more details around sort of this gin craze at the time. Um, so in 1730, uh, there were estimated to be 7,000 gin shops across London uh, I learned this week and according to some historians by 1743 England was drinking 2.2 gallons which is around 10 litres of gin per person per year that is a lot of gin what happened to I mean why was gin so popular do you have a sense of what it was specifically about gin at the time that made it made it such a popular drink uh, there were a couple of reasons, I think, why um, it became so popular in the 1700s. Uh, one, because of the sort of ongoing wars with France, and it was harder to get an imp- import French brandy. Um, so that did it, that sort of increased the popularity, but also um, because of the sort of cheap prices. And actually, at the time, it wasn't this type of gin wasn't what we would recognise as gin today. It was something that was a lot more harsh and sort of strong and uh, sort of just very uh, much a, a, a strong uh uh, amount of um alcohol percentage and stuff like that it wasn't a pleasant drink essentially and as sort of like the craze uh and popularity around gin sort of continued over like a period of about 20 years the parliament in the uk passed five different laws uh different gin acts to try and um actually sort of curtail the expansion and the sort of negative effects on society it was having what a time to be alive matt reynolds what have you got for us fact wise 
So in the time-honoured tradition of having a fact that relates to a story later on, I learned that there is a medical device designed exclusively for measuring the volume of testicles, and it's called an orchidometer. I think I'm pronouncing that wrong. Any urologists um, write into the show, tell us how to write it, how how I'm meant to say it. Orchidometer, I think. It consists of a string of 12 wooden beads that go up in size from one millilitre to 25 millilitres. It looks a lot like a string of rosary beads, in fact. And there's also a digital orchidometer available as an app in case you need to measure your testes on the go. I have two observations based on that. The first is that I didn't realise urologists had jurisdiction over that area. So that's something I learned today. That's my fact. Secondly, this app I find fascinating. How can an app possibly do this? Yeah, it's kind. It's quite an interesting app, actually, because uh, you can track the size of your testicles over time. So I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure how much testi- testicle size varies. And you know, I've, I've put on half a milliliter of testicle today. Um, but really, it just shows a kind of egg-shaped blob. And I guess the idea is, is you put your phone near the testicles and you just compare. You eyeball it. Really, I have to say, <laughs> this doesn't seem like it's not the most precise testing tool it's not like a you know a, a laser pointer or a, a you know something right. something like that so it's a bit um I, I guess it's a bit of a rough rule of thumb but yes every urologist should should have one apparently that uh, so, so not it's not using like lidar or something like that it's essentially just like you could achieve the same results with just some circles on a piece of paper basically yeah it, essentially yeah i mean it looks a little bit like an abacus or something except the the beads go in a sequential time a uh, se- you know, uh, sequence of of size so it really is particularly lo-fi but i just like the fact that there's a very very specific tool for a very very specific um problem or, or specific goal and you're not really going to be reaching for your orchid orchidometer for um you know anything else <laughs> All right, so we've got much, much more on testicles later on in the show, but our first, <laughs> our first story this week is about name discrimination. Um, so a few weeks ago, a Scottish politician called Hamza Youssef posted a really harrowing story on Twitter. He claims that a nursery where his family live in Dundee discriminated against his young daughter because of her Muslim-sounding name. When Yusuf's wife applied for a place at the nursery, she was told that there were no spaces available. But when she asked a friend with a more white-sounding name to apply, the friend was offered a tour of the nursery and a choice of days for their child to attend. Now, isolated incident maybe, but then the same thing happened again when a journalist for the Daily Record repeated that process at the same nursery using two fake names. The Muslim-sounding application was rejected, the one that used the white name was sent enrolment forms, and they were treated very, very differently. This is obviously a pretty shocking sort of case that um, we saw and there's a lot of attention around this as well. But um, this isn't obviously the first time that something like this has happened, of course, is it? No, exactly. It's far from an isolated incident. So there's been decades of research that has found that name discrimination in education and employment is really a very real phenomenon. One cleverly designed study in the United States found that candidates with black-sounding names needed eight more years of experience to get the same number of callbacks as those with white-sounding names when applying for jobs, for example. There's been similar research over decades across loads of different countries finding the similar effect in the job market. Um, Now, Yusuf's experience made me think for really the first time in my life about my name 
and the impact that it's had on my personality and my career path. Obviously, my name is uh, unusual in the UK, although it's, my first name is relatively common in India, but the, the combination of my first name and surname marks me out as quite obviously not being from around here. Um, so it made me think about whether I'd be a completely different person if I'd been called something different about how many doors might have been slammed in my face without me even knowing about it. And essentially the question that popped into my head as I read this story about Hamza Yusuf and his family was, is my name ruining my life? Um, so I started looking at some of the research into this to find out. Yeah, and as you said, there's, there's been quite a lot of research over sort of like decades and years around this. Was there anything that you uh, found out that was particularly sort of, uh, su- well, not surprising, but sort of new and uh, and sort of developing in this area? Yeah, so the most recent work that's, I guess, applicable to my situation living in London is the GEM study, which is a five-year, five-nation field study in Europe, um, kind of from four or five years ago. So researchers applied for thousands of real jobs using a mixture of different names. And I found the results really shocking. Uh, They found that in Europe, ethnic minorities needed to send 60% more applications to get as many callbacks as the white majority. So a similar phenomenon to what we've seen in America and in other countries as well. But I had kind of thought that being from a relatively well-represented group and living in a relatively diverse city might shield me from the worst of these effects. I'm I'm British Asian, so there's about, I think, 13% of the population is British Asian. So it's not as if we're, you know, a small group. And particularly in London, which is a really diverse city with a lot of Indian people in it, you'd expect that these effects might be mitigated. But actually, the opposite seems to be the case. So... The researchers found that countries with a longer history of immigration from former colonies seem to have higher rates of discrimination, not lower. So British employers were actually the most discriminatory in the study, which also looked at Norway, Germany, Spain and the Netherlands. I spoke to one of the researchers, Valentina de Stasio, who said that she was a bit surprised by that. In Britain, the level of name discrimination is very high by international standards. Yeah, so with this uh with this sort of study and everything like that um they're obviously looking at different types of jobs and industries and things as well as uh the overall sort of impact and were there any um particular jobs or industries where it was worse no i thought this as well i'd kind of thought well okay maybe it's it's you know maybe this effect might disappear in like white collar jobs where I don't know, maybe people who are more educated discriminate less or something like that. But actually the effect held across countries, across different types of jobs, from high-skilled back-end roles in software to customer-facing vacancies in the service industry. What they did find, though, that there was a hierarchy a, diff- a hierarchy of differences depending on the person applying, or at least on the name of the person applying and what it sounded like, where they came from sounded like, so depending on the name, essentially. So in Britain, there was a clear and depressing hierarchy in terms of which ethnic groups were favoured in the jobs market. So people with white sounding names got the most responses, then people with Western European sounding names, followed by Eastern European, Asian, Middle Eastern, and finally African. Um, Distasio and her colleagues were able to compare the data from recently, from four or five years ago, with similar studies conducted in the 1960s, which is when my grandparents and parents arrived in, in the UK and faced, you know, actual in-your-face outright hostility and racism from some of their neighbours. But what Distasio found and what I found really shocking was that the level of discrimination faced by South Asians and Pakistanis in the jobs market was as strong today as it was at the end of the 1960s. So on the face of it, although society has moved on since then, you know, racist abuse in the street is, is mercifully rare, or at least I've found it to be relatively rare, is that discrimination has morphed into something a bit more pervasive and insidious. So... That's really worrying. Obviously, things haven't as moved on as much as we think. And I guess the second thing is that we're at a moment in time where hiring algorithms are being trained on human decisions. And if 
those human decisions are biased by name discrimination or other forms of discrimination, they could get locked in for decades. Yeah, it's incredibly shocking that yeah, these uh, this level of sort of discrimination and things hasn't changed uh, in the last sort of uh, 50, 60, 70 years, as you say, because um, it does feel like um, that yeah, society has moved on in in many of those sort of ways. But is there any sort of like idea or sort of um, uh, answer to what is sort of driving this sort of phenomenon at the moment? Yeah, it's hard to say, really. It's not, um, you know, it's not necessarily just about racism. I spoke to Sonia Kang, who's an associate professor at the University of Toronto uh, in Canada, and she's conducted extensive research into name discrimination and what's known as CV whitening, which is where you do something similar to what Hamza Yusuf and his family did, which is to essentially change your name on your CV and see if that job application has more luck than your actual name. She doesn't think it's active racism, as in she doesn't think that people are rejecting these applications because they think that people from that ethnic group are worse than people than white people. Instead, she thinks it's more like subtle processes, things like name fluency and kind of small differences that accumulate, I suppose. So she says that if a hiring manager sees a name that they don't know how to pronounce, they might think, oh, well, I don't want to say this person's name wrong, so I'll skip that one and move on to the next applicant. Um, which, you know, is kind of, <laughs> I guess, good that they don't want to offend you. But if it means that it's ruining your career chances, actually, I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather you said my name wrong, personally. Um, she also found that although many companies say that they embrace diversity, you know, if you apply for a job, there's often a little boilerplate thing at the bottom of the job ad saying, you know, uh, we're an equal opportunities employer, etc., etc. But in practice, this makes little difference. She found that companies with diversity statements on their websites were just as likely to discriminate against candidates with non-white names. And actually, it may be making things worse. She says that ethnic minority candidates might be tricked into a false sense of security. They might feel that because a particular company is an equal opportunities employer, they can be themselves in their application. They can show more of who they actually are and not have to do things like whiten their CVs to try and get in the door. But actually, it may be that those companies are just as discriminatory and they may be shooting themselves in the foot. And when we're talking about this type of name discrimination, is it just uh, race where it can have an impact or is it uh, other areas too where we're seeing uh, the, the, these sort of uh, things keep coming up? Yeah, obviously, I think when, 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 when you're applying for a job, your name is like one of the... Obviously, people are meant to look at your experience and you know history and stuff like that, but name, your name is one of the, the big sources of information that they have about who you are as a person where you've come from etc etc names are a badge that we carry into the world that tell us tell a lot about you know our background i suppose um and yeah as you say my name discrimination isn't just limited to race researchers in new york have found that people with female names tend to be rated as less competent people with male names were seen as less warm there's even differences in sound and I wouldn't I don't know how much you can how much weight you can put into these kind of social psychology studies particularly ones conducted in a lab like these ones were but they found for instance that women with soft sounding names like Sophie were perceived as being more attractive whereas for men people with short sharp names like Jack were perceived as being more attractive in the jobs market people with old fashioned names are treated differently possibly because people think that they're older because they've got an old-fashioned name and you know if you can't immediately tell from someone's cv how old they are you might rule them out on the basis that their name makes them sound like they're in their 60s even if they're actually in their 30s um but you know as i said it's really hard to disassociate name discrimination from straight up racism there's been a couple of studies that kind of shed some light on this so research in sweden found that immigrants who adopted nordic sounding surnames had better outcomes 
than those who kept their original names. So their earnings increased by 26% on average compared to people that kept their original kind of names from where they were originally from. Um, there hasn't been much research. So one of the things that I was personally quite interested in was first names, right? Because, you know, if, if I have children, eventually I want to give them a name that isn't going to be like a, a millstone around their neck. I want to give them a name that's going to enable them to flow through society and, you know, fulfill their potential or whatever. But there hasn't been a huge amount of research done looking at the role first names might play. So there are some indications from studies that mix Western sounding first names with foreign surnames that suggest that doing that isn't enough to eliminate the discrimination, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and I guess, obviously, as you alluded to earlier, why we're talking about this as well is obviously because uh, with the rise of sort of more automation and um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, etc., these types of, the types of processing around people's data and their names and, and things can be a lot more uh, done uh, without human oversight in some cases. And that's particularly been, um, I think, the case in, as you say, sort of recruiting and CVs. And there's been uh, examples of, plenty of examples of systems that are HR systems, etc., that are set up to try and uh, automatically decide if somebody is appropriate for a certain job. And over time, those types of systems have um, based... Uh, been discriminatory based on people's names and sort of some of the uh, their experiences linking certain types of jobs to certain uh, types of uh, names and, and genders and all of these types of things and particularly when we're looking at sort of like name discrimination and uh, around sort of recruitment is there anything being done to fix this yeah so there's nothing on a sort of systemic level you know i don't think you can ever really fix discrimination but what you can do is take steps against it particularly companies that are hiring can take steps against it. So there's been a lot of talk in the past about name blind recruitment, which can help, particularly for entry level roles. Um, I don't see how name blind recruitment, so name blind recruitment for the listener is where you uh, essentially take any identifying information off the CV before you pass it to the hiring manager. So they're making decisions based purely on the content of the application rather than that person's name or whatever. Um, I don't see how that will work in fields like journalism or, you know, other fields where your portfolio and your name is a lot of the weight that you carry with you or where you're, you know, you're, you're, it's very easy to find out based on your CV who you are, right? Because you're, you've got a public profile. Um, Sonia Kang's research has found that even if you do take people's names off, there are other signifiers of race, race and religion in a person's CV that can ha hamper their chances. So, you know, if you volunteer at your local church, you might find that that boosts your job prospects in, uh, you know, a Western white Anglo-Saxon society. But doing it at your local mosque might actually harm your chances because the people will be able to see that on your CV and they might discriminate against you based on that. There's another potentially beneficial approach called horizontal recruitment. So instead of looking at each CV in turn, you compare them in sections and you score all the candidates on each part before coming up with an overall score. And the idea that that will be less influenced by personal details because you're comparing each section of the CV against each other in one go rather than the entirety of the application with that person's identifying details. But, you know, name blind recruitment and, and um, horizontal recruitment aren't much help for individuals or candidates or parents who have to contend with the current system i know people that have resorted to the nuclear option of sending in the same application under a white pseudonym but to be honest for the individual this rarely yields any satisfactory results there's just too many variables to contend with you don't know whether they haven't replied to you because that particular email didn't get through to them for some reason or because the person you're applying to was off on one day but back on another day you really need the scale of academic research to see what's going on and Kang and her colleagues sent out 16,000 job applications as part of their research, for instance. Um, 
I think what's so interesting about the Hamza Yusuf case is that it's unusual and that he and his wife actually managed to get something that's close to a a smoking gun, you might argue, and he is now pursuing legal action against the nursery, which still denies any wrongdoing. Yeah, and one one of the things that was particularly um, galling about the case with the nursery, which, as you say, has obviously denied any wrongdoing, is that this was repeated on sort of multiple occasions with a journalist doing this as well and sort of showing that actually the, the, this sort of discrimination appeared to be happening sort of uh, consistently. Um, and there is, um, as well, um, as you sort of mentioned, sort of the nuclear option of, of people sort of um, changing their names or things as well. Is Is that something that's common? Yeah, I mean, it's really common. I think I think it's probably more common than you even realise. I think a lot of people actually um, change their names and you just wouldn't know because they changed it before you met them and that's their new name now. So when I was researching the piece, I um, did an article on this on the YGK website, uh, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. But um, I talked about the actor Amitabh Bachchan, who is um, an Indian actor who I'm named after. And I didn't realise until I was researching the piece that his name was actually also not his original name that he was born with. He changed his name or his father changed the family name to enable his son to you know go further in life and it's really really common people anglicize their surnames people shorten their first names to make it more pronounceable to western tongues people abandon their name and adopt a new one altogether i think there's this idea that names can open doors but names can also close doors you know there's that's why some countries maintain lists of banned names you know in italy it's illegal to draw your child adolf hitler or osama bin laden or joe tribbiani they do that to protect the kids right you know they know that if you give a kid that name it's going to really damage its chances in life um and i think that's a sort of tacit acceptance that names are really really important um i think you know i found this story quite affecting i guess overall and i think one of the hardest things about it from my perspective is that you just don't know how much of a role discrimination might be playing you know maybe if i had changed my name as a teenager i'd be in a completely different place right now but you just never know you don't know if your job application got rejected because you didn't have enough experience or it might have just got binned because they couldn't be bothered to learn how to say your name um and you know we gave this article the sort of slightly uh, sensationalist headline of is your name ruining your life and it's really hard to quantify the impact of something like that. It's really hard to untangle it from general racism, from discrimination. Obviously, my name hasn't ruined my life. You know, I've got a good job. I do something I enjoy. I live in a good city. But it's really hard not to play sliding doors in your head and think about how your life would have turned out differently if you'd been given a different name. Because I think you're... It goes back even further. You know, it goes right back to, you know, when you're at nursery, like comes the use of kids are... it it colours everything about you. I think the way the way the world treats you colours your personality, which then impacts your, you know, the kind of things you're interested in, your politics, what kind of things you're good at. And I think your name is such a big part of that that it's bound to have an impact. You know, I could be a completely different person entirely. Yeah, one one of the really sort of compelling things and things that I hadn't thought about as well when I was reading your piece, which, I mean... Uh recommend everybody goes and does is just also sort of the idea of thinking about this for sort of future children or your families or stuff like that when uh when you're obviously considering giving uh children names and stuff like that and it's like actually um the name that you're going to give them is going to impact their entire life going forward and and that's something that i hadn't considered before as well yeah so i think a lot of people have two names you know that they kind of switch between so my name um is pronounced differently. I pronounce it differently when I'm talking to to English people to the way that it's actually pronounced in India. For instance, my, my wife's family are from Iran and they basically have two names. They've got like an Iranian name and they've got an English name and they use the English name in English racing settings and the Iranian name in 
internally. And I think that's the kind of thing that people have to do. Um, and it's really interesting. And I, it's not something I'd given a lot of thought to, I think, until I saw this story. Um, and hopefully the, the piece will shed some light. And it, it definitely struck a chord online. I think I've had a lot of messages from people this week saying that, you know, it really resonated with them. So do check it out. Um, we'd be really interested to hear what you guys think as well. Is your name ruining your life? How does this kind of thing play out where you're listening from? Do let us know at podcast at wired.co.uk. Now, slight change of pace for our second story. Our second story this week is about balls and one starts up catering to men who want to make their testicles look bigger. Matt Reynolds, what's going on? Yeah, that's right. After that quite, you know, profound and reflective story, I'm here talking about supersized testicles or are they supersized? So, yeah, if you'll forgive me for the abrupt turn, <laughs> this, yeah, this is a story about people that want bigger balls and at least one startup that is very eager to sell them that dream of larger testicles, even if scientists really aren't that convinced that you can just take a supplement and increase the size of your testicles. This whole story hinges on a very particular probiotic. And just a reminder for our listeners, um, a probiotic is essentially uh, you know, live bacteria or yeast, essentially microorganisms that can inf- influence your health. And this probiotic we're talking about is something called Lactobacterius ruteri. And we've known about L. ruteri, as it's typically called, since the 1960s. It's naturally present in our guts. It's in formula milk for babies. And it's also in a bunch of probiotic supplements you can order today. It's a really, really uh, common bacterium, common probiotic. But a Colorado-based startup called UMZU, it's all capitalised, U-M-Z-U, has started marketing this bacteria, um, bacterium as a way to increase the size of your testicles. And it's making pretty, pretty um, uh, bold claims, really. On its website, UMZU describes its probiotic as containing the only living bacteria that can solve the problem of small balls. And a YouTube video video featuring the founder is called How to Grow Bigger Testicles. And as of now, it has around over 1.3 million views. So people are interested. Are people, is this just people watching out of sort of a morbid curiosity or are people actually taking these supplements? And a, a second question, if I may, which I'm not sure uh, I've ever really got the rationale for this. Like, why do people want to make their balls look bigger? It doesn't make sense to me from a sort of, <laughs> that from that perspective, I don't get it. Yeah, so on your first question, people are taking these supplements. Some people are taking the one that is sold by Umzu. Some people are taking you know, generic alternatives. Obviously, you can get cheaper versions of most supplements. Um, and our reporter, this is for a story that's on the wired.co.uk website. There'll be a link in the show notes. Our reporter, Matthew Ponsford, spoke to some of those men who are trying to supersize their balls. And one representative example was someone called Kevin, who didn't want to tell us his last name, but he takes a L. Ruteri probiotic every day, along with a whole uh, bunch of other supplements. He's he's really quite into this kind of, um, you know, this, this supplement mindset that if you take these, you take these herbs and you take these enhancements, that'll, you know, lead to better all-round health. And one community that seems particularly interested in this supplement um, is bodybuilders. So one of the side effects of taking performance-enhancing steroids is that it can cause your testicles to shrink. And so some people are looking to probiotics as a way to counteract this. And actually, you know, um, performance-enhancing steroids are really, really popular. I think there was a, a Guardian article that said that in the UK, there are around 1.2 million people who are just, you know, casual uh, gym goers or cyclists or, you know, bodybuilders that take 
performance enhancing drug so actually it's it's not necessarily good for you but it is really really popular but some people are worried about this side effect which can be reduced testicle size but this probably won't surprise listeners to hear but there's a much darker size to this you know this ball enhancing hype and on sites such as 4chan um, where lots of men first stumble across L. Ruteri. There's you know, advice about body enhancement is mixed with you know, misogynistic, alt-right, and this you know, self-loathing uh, commentary. Obviously, incels have been in the news recently because of this you know, horrific shooting in, in Portsmouth in the UK. And this does seem like another aspect or another wing of the manosphere, people that are obsessed with testosterone levels and because of that, uh, larger balls, because they're interpreted as being the secret ingredient to beating physical weakness or um, defying ageing or low energy or sex drive or, or a lack of social confidence. So, you know, one of the drivers is really this idea of hypermasculinity and what could be more masculine than having giant balls or the, the biggest balls that you could imagine. I would assume that, it's not like a two-way relationship in the sense that having more testosterone presumably makes your testicles bigger, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the opposite is true and that artificially inflating them would suddenly boost your testosterone levels by itself. Is there any evidence that this stuff works? Does this bacteria actually work to increase ball size? In short, no. So uh, these claims come from a single study in 2014 that found that this, this bacterium could help reduce testicular shrinkage in mice as they got older. So, as I understand it, mice, when they get older, their testicles tend to shrink over time. But if they had this um, bacterium, this probiotic, the, the rate that their testicles shrinked slowed down. And startups were quick to jump on that and say, look, this means that you can grow your balls to be bigger. But obviously, not shrinking over time is very different to growing if you have it you know on a, over a particular period of time and also something happening in mice is really 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 different in you know, happening in humans so uh, our reporter spoke to the veterinary scientist that did this experiment back in 2014 and he basically said look this study doesn't say anything about the effect of the probiotic in humans now another supplement company which is called uh, BioGaia which actually sells a whole bunch of um, El Ruteri um, products. Pretty much their whole line is this probiotic, although they don't make the same claims about uh, testicle size. They've recently launched a clinical trial to try and understand whether the probiotic affects testosterone levels in older men. But the, cl- the claims that Unzu is making are way beyond this and, and beyond anything that's really supported by the science. Now, of course, the people that are taking this probiotic are a pretty self-selecting audience, right? So it's quite difficult to know uh, whether their claimed effects are really what's happening. And the only way you can really tell something like this is to have a, you know, a good uh, randomised control trial and really work out what's going on. But certainly some of these people that our reporter Matthew spoke to have noticed some effects, some have noticed no effects, but others report fuller testicles or uh, harder erections in the morning or increased libido. None of these things obviously were measured um, in the mice trial. So this is beyond even that, right? This is something that there's just no evidence for at all. So this is just, um, pr- might just be something that people are you know, projecting onto it. Um, Kevin said, you know, one day he woke up and he just said, wow, my balls look bigger um, and he's taking a, a cheaper generic alternative to the Umzu drug. And he said that it's noticeable enough, the difference, without having to measure them. Maybe he has a 
or Orchidometer. I don't know. I didn't ask him. Maybe he just downloaded the app. But um, yeah, he said, you know, by sight, they seem to be um, bigger. But scientists really pour cold water on these claims. So Matthew spoke to uh, Faisal uh, Yaffe, who's a urologist at UC Irvine in California. And he said, you know, if you're ranking scientific evidence from weak to, to strong, this is about as weak as it can possibly get. He said, to call it a stretch is the least you can say, basically. It's not rooted in any kind of evidence whatsoever. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of sort of scientific method going on here. There's no double-blind control studies, no twin studies to see what <laughs> whether this effect is actually real or imagined. As you say, Matt, you might imagine that someone like Kevin, who's invested a load of money in ball-boosting supplements, has a sort of vested interest in insane that they look bigger maybe you know maybe they change in size and it's not related to the supplements he's taken um i guess the question is like you know this seems relatively harmless obviously a lot of people are being kind of duped into thinking that that these things are uh, helping them but you know if they're taking in something and it just doesn't work does that does that matter in a way yeah it's a good point really because as you say you know if a bunch of people are doing this and it doesn't really affect anyone else Maybe they're not getting the benefits they hope they are, but but so what? Right? There's lots of diets people do and they don't work. There's lots of things people take and they don't work. And our reporter put this question to Amara Nassim, who's a London-based psychologist who, who specialises in nutrition and body issues. And she said, well, you know, it, it is really worrying as a trend that scientifically unproven claims, you know, like that this, that this startup were making and, you know, were being you know, pumped in adverts on Instagram and, and YouTube and Facebook, you know, she says this, this can really be quite disruptive and potentially quite destruct, you know, destructive when it comes to people's own body image, image. And she made the point that, you know, adverts targeting women often emphasise, um, you know, weight control or, you know, what their body looks like in a more general sense. But for men and adverts targeting men, they're often sold on ideas of masculinity and this idea of feeling more control and using the body as a vehicle for expression and and strength so it kind of ties into this idea that what some people call kind of toxic masculinity that there's a very there's only one way to be a man and it's about being hyper masculine and it's associated with testosterone it's associated with shows of physical strength and you know one of the most kind of cartoonish forms of that is big balls right people say colloquially oh um you know if you do something that's brave you know oh you know look at the size of his balls or something and this is people that are almost taking that to a you know an extreme end and saying well what could be more masculine just than increasing the size um you know of my testicles and the thing that a lot of these startups do especially when it comes to targeting these um things towards men is they point towards a backbone of scientific papers that either don't exist or they don't say the things that the studies say they do. So before we published this story, um, Amazon's website had a whole bunch of uh, links. It had a page that said, these are the scientific references we make. But if you looked through them, often the claims just weren't related to anything that was relevant. There was you know, links to Amazon products for a lunchbox. There was a link to a David Attenborough documentary. There was links to Wikipedia pages. And it's this idea that rather than um, pointing to any kind of sure science, they can just say, oh, look at all this evidence. And really, a Wikipedia page is not the same um, level of evidence that a you know randomized control t- trial is. And it's certainly not the same level of evidence as a Amazon lunchbox is. So it's this kind of alluding towards evidence that doesn't really exist. And Nassim says, you know, it's really dangerous. She sees 
men on social media where people are getting information from coaches and motivational speakers or celebrities and, and the founder of umzu a guy called christopher walker um is someone that says that he basically was unhealthy and then he basically fought himself out of his his diet and he he talks about um you know performing kind of illegal uh operations and how he completed this university course in you know a record amount of time so it's it's this whole idea of i've kind of hacked the system i've done it in a way better than anyone else and i can teach you to do this as well and essentially nasim says you know they're espousing nonsense they're dressing it up with words like you know biohack or pointing towards scientific studies and they're telling men it's wonderful for them but it's not it's not true and it's damaging and she says she you know wish wishes it didn't happen like this I think that veneer of science is really interesting. And this is something you see a lot in a lot of different fields. You see it popping up at the edge of neuroscience as well with, you know, brain zapping headsets and stuff like that. This, I think when there are new scientific developments in any field, you get companies at the fringes trying to exploit the lack of knowledge, right? And trying to, maybe not even cynically, but like just trying to like push the boundaries of what is acceptable, I guess, commercially and scientifically. And that's also true of this this is microbiome science which is a legitimately fascinating area with lots of great research being done but because we know so little about the gut and gut microbes and microbes more generally it can be misinterpreted and it's really it's really open to misinterpretation because the sort of fundamentals of the field are still being discovered right yeah exactly i mean the science of the microbiome which is you know basically as you said i this idea that you can influence your health by changing the composition of bacteria in your digestive system has you know absolutely boomed in the last few decades so we know there's a link between um digestive health or you know our micro our gut microbiomes and our mood or other aspects of our health and so it's really unsurprising that supplement companies have completely jumped on this and now you know microbiome supplements specifically are an industry that's worth 300 million dollars it's a really um you know one of the fastest growing subsections of the whole supplement industry and the problem is is we just don't know a whole bunch about how probiotics can influence your health um in a direct way we know something about the you know, some of the direct responses and say uh, you know what that can have on your digestive system and that type of impact but in terms of these second and third order effects that are slightly further away these are really really big gaps in our knowledge and the problem is when you have big gaps in your knowledge uh companies come in and, and flood those gaps with miracle cures and say look it can do this and you know point to towards these studies and really supplements are quite often poorly regulated they're not like drugs where they have to go through uh, trials and then be approved by authorities they can be sold quite easily and as long as they're not harmful often um you know agencies aren't looking particularly closely at the claims they make so i think this is just a really really good example of what happens when you have this legitimate area of science but because people understand it poorly and because companies are trying to look to make a, a, a quick buck you, you come up with all these um weird startups that start promising things and perhaps dangerously influencing people's you know idea of what the ideal body image looks like and it just gets us as a mess and that's really the situation we are with these uh you know ball enhancing supplements it's a really really fascinating story we'll put a link to it in the show notes um i think <laughs> It's really interesting because it's about more than one thing, right? It's about these ball boosting supplements, obviously, but it's also about, I guess, the relationship between science and um, business. It's about misinformation online. It covers a whole load of different areas. And I guess this is the end result of like this one case study that sheds light on a bunch of different stuff that we often talk about on the podcast. Um, 
I'm supposed to do a list link for the listeners here, but I'm not quite sure how how to how to phrase it properly, guys. What do you reckon? Are you taking ball boosting supplements? How big are your balls? <laughs> Let us know. Podcast at wide.co.uk. Um, be really interested to hear your thoughts on this one. Um, is this something that you've looked into? Is it something that maybe you've taken or friends of yours are taking? Are you taking kind of these sort of supplements more generally? How do you feel about the scientific evidence for them or lack thereof? Uh, do let us know. We love to get your feedback. And speaking of feedback, we have got one piece of feedback this week from Natasha, Matt Reynolds. Yeah, Natasha from Switzerland writes in about um, alternatives to meat. So she says, I love listening to your podcast uh, for a long time now, but I've never managed to write in. Well, now you have, Natasha. So thank you for listening and thank you for writing in. Um, And she says, in terms of meat substitutes, I really do love corn. And this is about the story uh, I brought on a a couple of weeks ago that was talking about the rise of um, fungi and how there's a whole bunch of new startups that are returning to, to fungi and saying, look, I think this will be a really good um, alternative to meat and there's going to be a whole bunch of growth in that area. Natasha says, I'm not vegetarian, but I only eat meat on a rare, rare occasions and I'm trying all sorts of alternatives that are offered in supermarkets. And she basically asks, she wonders how mycoproteins, which is protein made out of fungi, um, compare with in terms of their life cycle analysis and environmental footprint when you compare that with plant or insect-based uh, proteins. And she rightly points out the picture is not entirely black and white, although everything is better than beef. And I think that's totally right, Natasha. Um, actually, sometimes the comparisons between insects and um, soy or plant-based and something like microprotein, you know, you're not you can sometimes end up splitting hairs, actually, because in reality, they're all much, much better than beef. Um, and if you're comparing them to each other, actually, their environmental footprints vary slightly. Often insects come out really well because you can feed insects on weight and insects have very, very high um, levels of protein. But I think, you know, the real takeout is they're much, much better than producing it from, um, you know, normal beef herds. And probably it's a good idea to have a range. You know, if you want a certain type of protein, maybe have, you know, cricket flour and make protein bars out of cricket flour. But if you really want, you know, that burgery feel, maybe the best thing to go for is is a soy-based um, burger. So I think that, you know, the real takeout is they're all better than beef. And perhaps you'll end up in a situation where different forms of alternative protein uh, fulfill slightly different needs. And that looks like, you know, the area we're headed with, with, with mycoprotein and how it compares to soy and other things. I think we're also moving to a world where those kind of things are more prominently displayed on the packaging, right? Where you'll see carbon footprint of your corn versus your beef versus your insect burger uh, kind of on the packaging so you can make an informed decision in the supermarket rather than um, having to, I guess, you know, read the literature and stuff yourself. And hopefully that will help help spark some changes. Yeah, I think so. And I think the real takeaway for a reader is to think, the big difference you've made to your carbon footprint is if you switch from meat to plant, basically. And then what you choose within that plant segment will make a bit of a difference, but you're re- we're really talking about shaving a couple of percent off as opposed to shifting from beef, where you're talking about, you know, reducing it from 90 by 90% or something. So, you know, I, you don't want to get in that situation where you're like, oh no, everyone should be having microprotein because its impact is smaller. Actually, if you're making that really, really big change, you've done 90% of the work already. So convincing more people to make that shift is probably a bit more important than convincing everyone that's already on plant-based to switch to you know, insects or, or something else. Interesting stuff. Thanks, guys. That's about all we've got time for. We will be back next week. See you then. Bye. 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 Bye.